Hi everyone and welcome to Tea and the Law of Raspberry Jam, a podcast by me, Victor Sesson, and Esther Derby, with conversations and interviews about coaching systems, agile, management, culture, continuous improvement, and much, much more. The Law of Raspberry Jam is one of the laws spelled out by Jerry Weinberg, and it states that the more you spread it, the thinner it gets. It refers to dilution of messages. When we dilute a message, we can significantly weaken it or possibly even change the entire meaning of it. With Agile having become commoditized over the years, we think that many messages have been diluted and we'd like to share our perspective on some of them. In our second episode, we're so excited to have our friend Yasal Sundman with us. She's a consultant working at CRISP and together we explore what comes next after Agile, how it's likely to evolve over the coming years. We hope you'll like our next episode. We're really happy that Yassel is here with us today to talk about what comes next. Great. It's really nice to be here with you guys. Well, it's really nice to be in person. We're all in Stockholm and the sun is shining and it's glorious out. Um, yeah, so we, we're, we're talking about what's coming next in Agile uh, now that Agile has become commoditized. But before we go into that, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, Yasal, and what you do? Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been working for the past 15 years um, in uh, software development, uh, first as a software developer, uh, and then later on uh, doing uh, work as a Scrum Master and then an Agile coach, and now I'm doing uh, mainly coaching and some teaching. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. And we're here at uh, the office where I work. I work for a consultancy called Crisp, and we're in Stockholm, and we're in my favorite room with nice yellow uh, armchairs. Beautiful <laughs> gold armchairs. They're just glorious. We got one of these at home. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, when we had our son, August, uh, for Emily to sit in when he she was uh, uh, feeding him and uh, yeah, sitting up at late, because it has so good back support. I have one at home, too. I fell in love with them. <laughs> if they're from Ikea, I might be able to get one. They are. Oh! <laughs> There's a chair in my future. <laughs> that's definitely one thing that's commoditized. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, okay, so 15 years, you said. Yeah, about. Okay, so uh, what was your... So going back 15 years ago, was, was that when you first was introduced to Agile? Um, I, I was actually working with it uh, e even earlier. I mean, uh, the first Agile book, which which came out on Scrum uh, in 2000, uh, was when we first started uh, working with Scrum at the company that I was at. And before that, I joined a company specifically because they were working with XP, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to be able to, to do that. Uh, so I really got a chance to do all of that stuff, I mean, from the very beginning, uh, trying it out before it was popular, and then I moved to Sweden. And in Sweden, it was really much more popular than it was in the U.S. to do Scrum, to do Agile. Uh, it was all the rage. So that's where I ended up uh, doing a lot of that. And you and I were at the same assignment, my first assignment here uh, in Sweden. Yes, that was some time ago. That was some time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like super interesting. So you, you said that uh, XP, you were attracted to the idea of XP. Yeah. What about XP was it that was appealing? Um, I, I guess it reminded me a little bit more of uh, the way that we used to work at university. I, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of um, uh, my own work there. And 
it, you know, it was pretty collaborative. We worked together. I, I never saw a, a functional spec. I never had to write any documentation about uh, stuff. We didn't have massive amounts of meetings. You had a problem. You went and found the right person to talk to. You figured it out and you implemented it. And I came into my first job, job doing software development and I was given a stack of papers to read. <laughs> and that was supposed to explain to me what it was that mm -hmm. I was supposed to be doing. And before I could write a line of code, I too had to generate a stack of papers uh, to be able to figure out what it is that I was going to code. You know, what I find really funny about that is that in a lot of ways, XP reminds me of the way that we used to code when I was coding, Yeah, which was in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, so we did a lot of working together, understanding yeah. problems. We tested as we went. Yeah. You know, we didn't throw things over the wall to a different group of testers. We always tested our own code. Yeah. Or had some someone else in our another developer test it. We worked closely with the users or customers. I remember sitting in the you know, in the same room as the accountants, um, with the computer working on financial software. So for me. It was in some ways going back to something that had been distorted um, in this idea that we could separate thinking about the problem from from developing software to solve the problem. So that I think that's kind of funny. Yeah, absolutely. That we had the same experience several years apart. <laughs> that's right. Or similar experience in terms of re returning to a technical practice that was collaborative and tightly tied to the user. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just wondering where did we, to for lack of a better word, where did we go so wrong in the industry? Back then, or yeah, I mean, agile was a huge movement, a counter movement mm -hmm. to I guess mechanistic thinking. Well, I think that's where we went wrong was mechanistic thinking. You know, so when 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 there weren't that many programmers in the world. Um, you know, it was treated more as, uh, I don't know if I want to say an art or but it, or a craft, but it was something that was recognized as being um, an expertise and a process of learning and uncovering problems and uncovering ways to solve problems. And when, when computers became much more widely available, um, you know, programming became more widely dispersed. And the idea was that, you know, we have to write all these programs, but we don't have enough smart programmers. So we'll, we'll, we'll get all these specifications and tell them what to do. So it was a separation of head and hands in a way, mm -hmm. right? We have the people who will figure out the problems and then we'll just tell the, tell the worker bees over here, the programmer bees, what to do. And they can just have their hands on the keyboards. So yeah, mechanistic is the right, the right word. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this uh, recently because I've been reading um, a really old book, The Human Side of Enterprise um, by McGregor. He wrote it mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 60s. Uh, and there he's also talking about, I mean, it, you could just imagine it was somebody who writes about Agile today writing that book. He's talking about how you're supposed to treat people, how you're supposed to treat your workers, that you're supposed to consider the fact that these are uh, highly educated, motivated individuals who will absolutely contribute uh, to your company given the right context. And he's been talking about how 
um, all of the movements into Taylorism and treating everything like a factory pipeline, how that's been detrimental. And that was in the 1950s. And then you see it again, right? Like to me, it feels as if it's the cyclical uh, motion that happens. You you get uh, pushed back and then you go back again uh, to something that's more mechanistic or something that feels a little bit more predictable. Um, this latest edition of the book has comments uh, where they bring in, uh, it, it, it's been edited and they've, mm-hmm. they've added their own comments there. And they talk about how, oh yeah, but you know, uh, it turns out that maybe he's not quite right here because if you take a look at uh, Lean Six Sigma, for example, <laughs> it's, it is better to uh, maybe uh, treat everything as, you know, one big machine and uh, try to work. When it's a machine, it's yeah. better to treat it like a machine because that Six Sigma comes out of, of manufacturing. Yeah. And it's not applicable to knowledge work. Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it doesn't feel like it is, but it really feels like that's where we go back. People yeah. think you want to you want to achieve that efficiency. You want to do the best job that you can. And every once in a while, I think people start feeling that there's just too much overhead if I give each individual person uh, the freedom to to be their own selves and to create and, and to grow. Well, maybe that's going to cost us too much. And so, if we go back to uh, making sure everybody does the same job the same way will be able to control for quality. And I'm not sure that that's right. I think it's I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was being a little bit too nice there in my formulation. And I think that that's what happens with all of these movements. And I think now when Agile is being commoditized, we're back to yeah. that. You know, well, yeah. let's treat it all like a cookie cutter because then we can have more control over the quality of, of the implementation of Agile. Yeah. Deep sigh. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, it's there's there's a belief that um, you know standardization is necessarily more cost efficient, mm-hmm. um, and it, it in some ways comes back to the the problem of you know what is easy to count and what is difficult to count, and on some level. It, you know, it's appealing that everything is standardized and efficient. And, you know, if we do everything the same way, of course, it will cost less because, you know, then we don't have to support multiple processes and all this, you know, people actually knowing what's going on. But the difficult to count costs are associated with um, not not actually producing products that the customer wants with people who are disaffected, with people who are disengaged, with people who don't know, have never even conceptualized who their customer is. They don't know what their software is being used for. And those have costs, but they're not easy to count. And there are some things that are easy to count, but they're not visible in the same budget, like retention Mm -hmm. or many companies they work with, you know, oh, uh, we need an expert here. We we have a bottleneck here. We need to move some, a specialist from this team to that team. Not thinking about you know how how is that change going to affect group dynamics? Well, you know if you move this specialist from this team, that team's motivation they're going to go back to forming, which is going to decrease their motiv- their engagement levels and their productivity. Um, but you don't look at those numbers. I remember a conversation I had a long, long, long time ago when when um, part of the project that I had been working on was outsourced to a low-wage country. Mm-hmm. 
And we tried to talk about the costs of quality and the costs of morale and the costs associated with not having a connection to the people who are going to use the software. And the answer we was get, were given was that at their labor rate, they could build the wrong system five times for what it would cost us for you to build it right. Yeah. Which, I mean, it, it was interesting logic. <laughs> well, it sounds very similar to our assignment, Jess. I'm looking Absolutely. at you. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you're quoting them. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> But, but okay, so so here we are. I mean, it sounds like, you, okay, so we have this oscillating industry. Um, and now we're back to, you know, we've commoditized Agile. Uh, we're not saying this, but if we, if we exaggerate a bit, Agile, there are some elements of Agile that are mechanistic. You know, where, where do we need to, so where are we heading? Well, have you been following Ron Jeffrey's work on Dark Scrum? No, it's really not. it's really interesting and you know I I won't get it exactly right but scrum can because of its transparency and visibility and its cadence be used in a way that is extremely mechanistic mm -hmm. and extremely um tailoristic mm -hmm. um and I I think that in order to get out of that uh one thing that needs to shift is the mental Oh, um, the 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 mental image managers have of how to how to actually get work done in a knowledge context because their model is drawn from um, a thought process where the role of management is to extract maximum labor from from people mm -hmm. and as long as that's the dominant sort of motivator of management we are we're always going to be swinging back to that right or we'll have something that could be highly humanistic but it is used in a way that is quite inhumane yeah shouldn't this problem okay so, so we shouldn't use shouldn't it puzzles me that we're having this problem given that companies that use adopt mechanistic has mechanistic thinking should be outrun by companies that don't employ it. Yet, well, are they? I think some of, some of them are getting outrun by companies that don't. But I, that. And I think it's a it's a lot more complicated than that. If you have a winning product idea, if you've got a, a, a great idea, and you do it in a way that maybe isn't the best way to do it, you're still going to get something out there mm -hmm. and if you've got a really <clears throat> bad product idea and you're trying to iterate on it and do something uh, do something with it well maybe your core product idea wasn't such a great idea. maybe there it wasn't the time for it uh, right it, and so it, it's not that you're not going to get into a, a good product by by using a method that's that's suboptimal but maybe you would have actually gotten an even better product had you done it in a different way. Maybe you would have saved money. Maybe you wouldn't have had to have done it wrong five times mm -hmm. uh, for for just to finally get it right that fifth time. So I'm not sure it's that easy. I don't think you can say, well, if you do it one way, you're not going to get any results at all. But I think that you would have gotten better results. Maybe you would retain your people more. Maybe you'd have the, the talent staying. Maybe you'd have been even more innovative. And it also doesn't look at the co at the cost to the people. 
there's another book that I haven't I haven't read yet, but I bought it the minute I saw it came out. Called it's called Dying for a Paycheck mm-hmm. by um, Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's a professor at Stanford. I believe he's Stanford. I might be wrong about that, but he's a professor and has been researching management for many many years. And the the health costs, the human costs um, of the current dominant system of management are staggering. Just staggering. Yeah, I, I would say it's, uh, it goes along a lot with a lot of the articles that I've been reading about. I mean, if you take a look at uh, mental health uh, these days, people who are burned out um, at the numbers uh, that are showing there, we, we're doing better than ever uh, in the world. If you look at the average rates of what people are earning, mm-hmm. how many people are actually above the poverty line, how many people have a, a roof above their head. But we've got a lot more people now who are burnt out, stressed out, feeling like they don't have time. Instead of being able to enjoy the fact that we're at a point in, in life where things are, are going right. well for us, we're, we're all just running around in that hamster wheel. Having faster and maximum faster. labor extracted. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I guess you were asking what we see happening, and I don't really know. I mean, it, to me, it really feels like it, it goes back to being so cyclical. I mean, I read all of the older books, and it's crazy to see how many people have said what everybody mm-hmm. keeps saying. Uh, but where I would like it to go would absolutely be somewhere where you could uh, talk more about finding that potential in individuals, being able to, to uh, build that up instead of thinking about uh, making a, a lot of money for a company that's already making uh, a lot of money. Well, what about taking care of the people that we've got? Aren't we making these products to begin with to hopefully help somebody? <laughs> and shouldn't we also be helping the people who are creating these products? I'm thinking of a few ways. I know we've talked about mob programming. To me, mob programming is, is one example of where a counter movement to the mechanistic implementations or assimilations of agile and like no backlogs no estimates they are movements towards this because yeah, for me what you're saying is on a higher abstraction level like oh it's cyclical mm-hmm. uh, but so what are, what are some counter move like if, if it's cyclical that means we're getting, we're heading into a mechanistic age now because we're coming from an when Agile came, it wasn't mechanistic. So, so most oscillating systems, or one of one of the reasons you have oscillating systems is because you have delayed feedback, feedback loops, yes. right? So it's an overcorrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is that uh, in most of these cases is that people think of uh, polar opposites rather than saying we want the upsides of both of these. And and if we can. Uh, look at what the feedback loops are that would enable people to uh, not have this delayed um, feedback and overcorrection, but have some smaller way to steer. Uh, perhaps we could influence that. So that's an- another movement, like experimentation. I guess is what you're talking about. Um, no, I'm talking about how how can we have how can we have more robust feedback loops that enable people to uh, think about okay, I want some of the upsides of 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 
having a humane workplace and ha and working incrementally and iteratively. But I also want some ability to uh, forecast where things are going to be so I can deliver to a customer. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, somehow yeah. they're viewed as being totally incompatible. And if we can, if we can put in feedback loops that, uh, you know, allow both of those upsides, maybe we won't get the downside of either. So are you seeing any movements, like, uh, trends like uh, that? Well, no. Because <laughs> that's the, that's a solution. That well, that's how that's how you deal with with oscillating systems. Is you <laughs> you tighten the feedback loops. But to me, mob programming is such a way. Hmm. Um, I see. I see your point that mob programming can help. For example, the teams, the the groups who are working, be able to work together, uh, and work on it. Uh, I'm not sure how it would bubble up again to uh, this commoditized agile on a company level, on the other hand. Oh, just wait. It's going to be integrated into... An, it's going to be in safe? It's going to be a, It's going to okay. be in an agile framework, and then everyone's going to have to do it regardless if it fits there. So ju you don't have to worry about that. Someone has thought about that. But it does go counter to efficiency thinking, because my God, you have you know, uh, so you have many 10 people, people working on the same thing. How can that possibly be? effective we could have you know all 10 people working on separate things and get which so we're back to the way people think about how work flows through knowledge work flows through systems in some ways so so um i mean <coughs> over to you Yasal. like what are some trends you're seeing that you think shows promise um I, I like the word the uh, the words you added there shows show promise. <laughs> um, I, I am seeing some trends that are that are interesting, and I would I'd be interested to see where how they how they play out. Um, I, I've been hearing at a lot of different companies, even larger companies, about teams that really want to be able to take uh, greater responsibility and ownership for uh, the product. You hear that a lot. You see that. Uh, in the in the increased movement in UX, for example, and working on that and trying to figure out what the right products are. So even though their companies are maybe moving back towards a more uh, command and control uh, kind of situation, the teams themselves are still really interested in being able to take more responsibility and to say, hey, you know what, let's own our product. Let, let us try to figure out how to get it to be as good as it is. Um, and, and I, I hope that that can be one way uh, for us to be able to go forward where we don't go back to uh, old, old, more rigid systems. I'm not sure how, how that's going to play out, though. I also see lots of, of companies, um, small, new companies, entering market domains that have been dominated by these big multinationals mm -hmm. for years and making a, making a dent. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think that's encouraging. The part that worries me is that as that those new companies grow, they'll adopt the same sorts of structures and policies that oh, yeah. that yeah. lead back to mechanistic thinking. So yeah. I think there there needs to be a lot of thought about how do we how do we reduce the cognitive load as companies grow and deal with the coordination overhead as companies grow without becoming the same sort of uh, weighted down. Um, we have a policy for everything bureaucracy that you know these larger companies have become. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a certain inflection point in helping these these new 
companies that are entering all these markets um, grow without becoming a big old machine. Yeah. Or maybe that's a necessary step in all companies' uh, evolution. I know of few companies that don't have this period either makes or breaks them. Like, yeah. When they go from one team to two teams, that's a huge change. From two to ten teams, from ten to twenty teams. And they, they inject lots of processes, rules, frameworks, and then they notice that that doesn't work. Right, but there are alternatives. There are alternatives to the, you know, the massive policy manuals and the rigid processes. And so, so do you know any? Do you know of any companies where, where you, your, you know, perception is that they've been able to grow and scale without winding up in this trap that we're seeing so many other companies wind up in? It's a good question. I, I got a chance to talk to. Um, one of the coaches who works with ING. Um, ING is a really big company. <laughs> they employ thousands of people uh, and they've been trying to do uh, an agile implementation similar to Spotify's uh, agile implementation. Um, so I, I don't know, it, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's as structured as some of the scaled agile frameworks, for example, that are out there. But here's a really massive company yeah. that, on the other hand, grew uh, into a, a system that had a lot more structure and, and stuff. But going back to something more agile and trying to work that way, mm -hmm. um, from the stuff that I've read and from the things that I've heard, it seems as though they're succeeding in working that way. That some structure is necessary to deal with the coordination, the cognitive overhead um, when a company grows. You know, you can't just have a, a. I think it's difficult to have a completely flat company where you know 250 people report to the same person, and no one knows who's going to make which decisions and so forth. But I don't think it has to be at the at the extreme of having, you know, many many policies and you know everything has to go up the chain for permission and and so forth and so on um, and I you know I have uh, I know of a few small companies that must remain nameless that are that are trying to do to take an alternative to becoming a massive bureaucracy yeah. and sometimes I hear about pockets within companies where that's happening and then I wonder, I mean, is that the definition of success to be a really large company? Yeah. Well. Do you, it, it, because I mean, that's what we're, that, that's what this discussion then boils down to. If, if to be a large company, you have to put in uh, different processes and stuff is having a large number of employees. Is that, is that success? Is it desirable? Yeah. I, I don't know. It, I mean, you're gonna get you're gonna get as many uh, answers to that question as there is people. Absolutely, well, but I, I think but I, it's worth asking. Yeah. Is that an ends in its in itself? Is that what a company should be striving for? Well, if if you're publicly traded, increase you know, yeah. there are certain ratios that people look <laughs> at that drive that sort of thing. But I do know of at least one company that said, "No, we don't want to get bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we will have to turn down some customers." Um, and we will continue to serve 
as many customers as we reasonably can with the people we have and have the sort of company and the sort of experience and the sort of life that these people want. And I've spoken to several CTOs who have growth as an end goal in itself. Well, we mm -hmm. have to be, you know, we're, we're 200 today. We can't compete with a company with a thousand employees if we're only 200. I think that's a, that's false. I think so too, <laughs> but that is, that is a chosen, chosen truth that some of the people I speak to hold. Sure. Hold on to. Yeah, and then maybe if you if you're aiming to grow that big, then you need to have some kind of structure in place, and that that's that's the way that, that you that you deal with it by using a commoditized uh, agile. But you need to be. I that don't think big. that's a given. I don't think it's a given. I think it's what people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. You know, standardization, efficiency thinking. And the sort of structures that we see in big most big companies, I think that's that's a way. I don't think it's the only way. I think it's the familiar way. Yeah. But so, going back to your like the, the question about what shows promise, it sounds like what you're saying is the structure will change, um, and might change into command and control or not. But one one trend you're seeing is. Uh, teams wanting to own more of an end-to-end responsibility and companies um, sharing that goal and giving more responsibility and ownership into teams. Uh, yeah, I, that would be the optimistic reading of it. I really hope that the companies uh, will, will do that, absolutely. Uh, but I am definitely seeing that the teams are wanting to take on uh, that kind of responsibility. Okay. Um, we need to start wrapping up. I guess we do. That was a quick half hour. Well, it was, it was a really interesting conversation. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> okay, so is there um, is there anything you'd like to promote or push regarding, like, for example, a website or a course that you're holding that you'd like the listeners to know about? Um. It, uh, yeah, we've got uh, our blog at CRISP where you can read about uh, what my colleagues also think about what's going on in the state of Agile, uh, and I uh, write there as well. So uh, blog.crisp.se, um, and a lot of the entries are in English, so they're available to quite a wide audience. Plus, you can get your browser to translate. Absolutely. And you also you you're also running a course on coaching teams. That's right. So uh, I'll be offering a course uh, in the fall uh, about team coaching. So if you're in Stockholm and would like to know what the next step is, if you've started out as being a scrum master, you have your certification, and you're not really sure, like, is it just about uh, calling meetings, setting up retrospectives and plannings, or is there more? Uh, oh then God, this is I the hope course so. For you. <laughs> And you don't have to be in, live in Stockholm. You could travel to Stockholm, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it, it is beautiful. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, so thanks a lot for joining us on our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been delightful to see you again. It's been great.